Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, last week, we started reading uh, 2 Corinthians together. 2 Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote uh, because something bad had happened between him and that church in Corinth that he had founded, his friends there. And uh, it's a letter seeking reconciliation and healing and understanding, and it's a letter that responds to some uh, deeply personal criticisms. Uh, so this morning, we're going to pick up exactly where we left off. I'll read from 2 Corinthians 1. Uh, I'll read verses 12 through 22. For our boast is this, the, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of the Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. This is God's word and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we ask that as we read this letter together, this letter, letter that was written a long time ago, to people um, very different than us, that, that you would, by your spirit, do what you always do, and that is that you would meet us and meet us in the places where we are, uh, meet us wherever we are in faith or, or uh, outside of faith, whether we think it's weak or strong or we don't, we don't even know if we have it, meet us in whatever circumstances that we have and, and use this word to show us the grace of Jesus and change us by it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, well, this last week, <clears throat> I, uh, I really put my foot in my mouth. Um, I did something that created a little, a little discomfort for me. I went to hear someone give a lecture this last week. It was a, a theologian. And afterwards, there was this uh, question and answer session. Uh, and at the beginning of that session, the guy who had given the lecture actually started it by asking all of us who were in the room a question. He wanted to hear from us. And so when it was my turn um, to answer his question, as part of my answer, I poked a little bit of fun at a particular American city. I just made a, a snide little comment about this city. Uh, I'm not going to tell you which one. And anyhow, you know, people kind of laughed and things moved on. So later on, it was time for us to ask this guy questions, and 
uh, I asked him about where he went to church. I asked him about his church home. I was curious about it. Well, as part of his answer to my question, he mentioned uh, right at the start the name of the city where he lives. And you uh, may see where this is going. He lives in the city that I had made fun of. Uh, Man, uh, I could barely listen to the rest of his answer to my question. It felt excruciating. I kept thinking to myself, wow, everyone must think I'm a jerk. Or more accurately, everyone must know that I'm a jerk. You know, maybe this guy thinks uh, that I meant it personally. I don't know. Stuff like that was running through my head. I was ruminating over it, and it felt like time slowed down. Finally, he was finished talking, and I sheepishly told him, listen, I had no idea you lived there. I didn't mean anything by it. And honestly, his response was to laugh and go, oh, I'm with you. I dread flying into that airport tonight. So it was a relief, you know, for me. And the truth is, it was excruciating for maybe 45 seconds. But can you uh, imagine what it must have been like for Paul and for his friends in the first century in that church in Corinth. Paul had waited months. He had waited months for an emissary to arrive with news of what was going on at Corinth after he had written them a very, very difficult letter, after things went bad with them. And when that news finally came, it was hard news, and it was deeply personal news. So months and months of Paul thinking the worst and hoping and praying for the best, months and months of his friends in Corinth wondering why he was doing what he was doing and saying what he was saying, all of these months have passed. And now that Paul's heard from them, he realizes that things are still pretty messed up between them. There uh, is a minority there who keep accusing him of things that aren't really true. And then there's this other thing. Paul told them that he was going to do something, and he didn't do it. They can't possibly know why, and for months now they've been troubled and probably hurt by his actions. And in part of the letter that we just read, uh, Paul begins to address those things. So we, we all want to be heard, and we all want to be understood. There's not one of us here who doesn't deep down want to be um, admired and well-liked and well-regarded. Every one of us wants to be vindicated when someone has said something wrong about us, and perhaps even more so when it's among people that we have affection for. And so part of what we learn in this part of the letter is how to live and how to respond as followers of Jesus when this kind of conflict and when this this kind of trouble and when this kind of accusation starts happening in our lives. So Paul begins with something that sounds uh, strange and a little weird to our ears. Paul begins by saying, our boast is this. Now we hear that word boast and it almost always rubs us the wrong way because it means for us some kind of audacious self-promotion. But that was not uh, how the word uh, was heard. It's not how it was used in the ancient world. Boasting was this idea that was related deeply to confidence. And so sometimes boasting could be foolish and sometimes it could be audacious, but other times boasting could be seen as wise. 
depending, of course, on the ground of the confidence that it was based on. The Old Testament lesson that we heard read is, is, a, is a perfect example of that, in that God says through the prophet Jeremiah to the people, don't let the wise boast in their wisdom, and don't let the mighty boast in their strength, and uh, don't, don't let... Uh, Don't let the rich boast in their wealth. And it's pretty obvious why God says that, because all of those things can be taken away. And in the end, they all will be taken away. There are thin grounds for confidence. Instead, here's what God says. He says, boast that you know me, because I delight and I practice steadfast love and justice and righteousness on the earth. That is a thick ground for confidence. And that is the way that Paul uses this word boasting, to point to this thick ground of confidence that he has in the way that he has been with his friends in Corinth. He says, I've checked my conscience, and I think that we have behaved with simplicity and with godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. So let me say a couple of things about that, starting with Paul checking his conscience and talking about his conscience. Um, here's, here's what conscious is, conscience is not. It is not the voice of God inside of us. Conscience isn't that interior voice where God tells us what we should do or not do or avoid or not avoid. That's not what the conscience is, and, and Paul knows that. Conscience is really a totally human faculty, and here's what it does. It measures our actions and other actions, other human behaviors, against the highest standard that it knows. That's what conscience does. And so, of course, conscience can be totally fallible and wrong because our highest standard might really stink. It might be wrong. Mark Twain gets this. He has Huck Finn say, a person's conscience ain't got no sense. But I want to say that it is definitely a good place to start. In particular, for those of us who follow Jesus. Because our standards for human behavior have hopefully been shaped and nourished by Jesus himself. Right? It is Jesus who tells us that we should do to other people like we want done to us. It is Jesus who tells us that we are to love our neighbors. It is Jesus who tells us that we are to love our enemies. It is Jesus who tells us that we bless the people who curse us. Those are incredibly, incredibly high standards and honestly ones that we can't reach without his grace empowering us. But when we are in conflict with someone, when we are at odds with someone or some situation, when we have been accused, it makes perfect sense for people like us to allow our conscience to check what we have done and who we have been and what we have said against those standards. Because sometimes it is just that black and white. And we don't have to do any thinking backflips, we don't have to do any moral consulting we can be people who just say, I was wrong, and I'm sorry, 
I know I was wrong. Will you forgive me? People like us can say that um, because we are people who have been forgiven. We're people who have been forgiven much. We know what it's like to ask for forgiveness. We know what it's like to receive it. This is at the heart of who we are as God's people. And so it's worth asking, I think, if there are some people that you and I ought to be doing that with, ought to be saying I'm sorry to, maybe as early as this afternoon. So Paul talks, he's checked his conscience, he talks about behaving with simplicity and sincerity, he even talks about writing things that he thinks they can understand. He knows that his writing can be dense. I, I love these categories. Paul's saying, I've been as open-handed as I can. I'm not running some kind of con on you. I've tried every time that I can to make things clear. But of course, there are times when things are complicated. There are times when things aren't black and white, when things are harder to figure out. And I think that's why Paul brings up wisdom in particular, wisdom that is shaped by the grace of God, as opposed to wisdom that he calls worldly wisdom. And it's interesting, in scripture, this notion of competing wisdoms comes up a lot. And I think it's important, because the value of any wisdom is directly related to what it is practiced in reference to. Here's what I mean by that, there, there's a wisdom that says, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And that is wisdom that is practiced in reference to the day of our death, <laughs> right? That's the end point of that wisdom. It doesn't look out past that moment. And you know, living according to that wisdom leads to excess in life a lot of times. It leads to consumption, it leads to self-orientation. I would argue that it's not very valuable wisdom. But there's this other kind of wisdom, like the wisdom we see in Ecclesiastes 3, where we hear that God has put eternity in the hearts of human beings. That's wisdom that's practiced with no fixed end. That's wisdom that's informed by the sense that there is more to this life than what we can see and taste and touch and feel in the present moment. That's valuable wisdom, and it usually leads to a whole different kind of living and being in the world because it's wisdom that's indexed to the reality of God, and not only to the reality of God, to the grace of God, as Paul says. It's wisdom that is lived out under the reality of God, but also with the reality of his inclination of love towards us to offer us forgiveness that we don't have to earn, that we never could earn, and to offer us that forgiveness even though it costs him everything. Paul, in another place, calls this the wisdom of the cross. And a life lived out in reference to that is going to look a certain way. Sometimes it's going to look foolish, and sometimes it's going to look subversive. It's not always black and white. It requires some thinking and some working and some praying and some sweating and some crying to figure out how to live life under the wisdom of the cross. And that's, that's what this letter is, to be honest. It's an invitation that Paul is making to his friends in that church, and that he's making to people like us to do the same thing when we are in conflict and in trouble and under accusation. 
that we would begin to think and pray and wonder and meditate and cry through what does it look like for the foolish wisdom of the cross to be applied here? How do I live in light of that story? So Paul is very confident that his friends are going to do this, which is why he says, trust me, on the day of the Lord, when Jesus comes to make everything new again and all of our actions and everything we've said and we've done to and for and with one another and all our motives are seen with perfect clarity, you'll boast of us, trust me, and more importantly, I'm certain that we will boast of you. That is a pretty great and pretty hopeful thing to say, given all of the hurt and the pain that exists between them while he writes it. But as we'll see, that that thick confidence that Paul has isn't really based on them or on him. It's based on the God who keeps promises. And so this is where Paul shifts and for the first time begins to address the specific things that have passed between them. He writes, uh, I wanted to come to you first. So, so what is that all about in verse 15? Well, this is what it's about. At the end of 1 Corinthians, which Paul wrote from Ephesus, he told the Corinthian church that he wanted to come to them. He was going to visit them. And then he was going to go to Macedonia And then he was going to come back to Corinth before heading out to Judea. That was uh, his plan. But things didn't work out that way. That's not how things went down. When he heard how bad things were in Corinth, he did go to Corinth for the first visit. And he went a lot sooner than he had planned to go. And that visit went really badly. He called it a painful visit. And so Paul left quickly, and instead of coming back to visit them again, he wrote a very difficult letter and sent a letter to them instead of visiting them himself. It was the letter uh, that he wrote with many tears that we talked about last week. So we will talk and see next week why Paul made this choice and why he did what he did. But for now, the point is that Paul said he was going to come, and he didn't. And this opens him uh, to the charge of, you know, being a flip-flopper, of vacillating, of speaking out of both sides of his mouth, of saying yes, yes, and no, no at the very same time. And I know that accusation might sound a little bit strange to us, because we, we may hear of a change of plans, especially in a, in a really difficult situation like this, and say, that's okay, Paul. We know that stuff happens, and to be honest, we were all pretty mad at each other the last time we saw you. This is for the best. But that is not their approach at all. And we don't don't really have time to unpack all of the reasons why, but for now, just let me say that this response would have been pretty normal in a place like Corinth, given all of the cultural and philosophical commitments that were valued at the time. I'm thinking in particular, in particular of Stoicism, which would generally view someone uh, who changes their mind or who changes their opinion about something as uh, weak or as unvirtuous. One uh, Stoic philosopher just comes out and says that a man with good sense doesn't change his mind. And that's what's behind this accusation. 
And Paul definitely changed his plans. He's not denying it. But what he wants to do is to give his friends a different way of looking at things. He wants to shake up that that philosophical and cultural status quo. He wants to give them a new way to look at him and to look at themselves and to look at the world and to look at God. So he says to them, our word to you has not been yes and no. And then instead of just explaining it straightforwardly, (laughs) which he does do later, Instead of just saying, here's why I didn't come, he lays down some incredibly heavy theology. (laughs) This is what Paul says. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all of the promises of God find their yes in him. And I just want to say, church, that this, this is classic Paul. This is how he thinks and writes. And sometimes it's hard to follow him, but to try to follow him often pays off big time because what Paul is saying is that all of the promises of forgiveness and all of the promises of healing and all of the promises of justice and peace and restoration, every single one of those promises that God has ever made to his people have been kept in Jesus. Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension are the yes to every promise God has ever made. Another way, you know, to say this would be to ask a bunch of questions, (laughs) right? Can God restore this broken world? Can God remake this horribly broken place? Can God make justice roll down like waters into this very thirsty and very dry place? Can I know God? Can I be known by him? Can God forgive somebody like me? Can God make peace with other people possible? And the answer in Jesus is always yes. It is always yes. And that is the best news that any of us here this morning are going to hear today, I promise you. And people like us hear that yes, and we experience that yes through faith in Jesus. And so Paul says that's why we utter our amen to God through Jesus for his glory. Okay. This is why I say this is classic Paul, because this is how he thinks about everything. In his writing, you can see over and over again that he lives out his whole life plotted onto the good news of Jesus. There is nothing too mundane, not even changed travel plans that he won't think through in light of the gospel, in light of the long and beautiful story of God and his world and us. Everything is plotted into that story. But it's not a shell game. He's not trying to distract them. He does it in order to establish them together. That's what he does in verses 22. He says to them, listen, this same God who says yes to all of his promises in Jesus is the God who establishes us together in Jesus. 
It's, he's the same God who put a seal on us. It's the same God who's anointed us. It's the same God who's given us his spirit as a guarantee. We are together, church. He says we're together in this beautiful story, even if it has taken a turn that we did not want it to take. Even if it has taken a turn that we wouldn't have expected and never would have written into it ourselves. You know, the long story of God and his world has taken some twists and turns. There were a couple times in that story, a lot of times in that story, where it looked like it had absolutely reached a dead end. But God kept saying yes. And now here we are, together, with an uncommon and deeply meaningful mutuality that heals sorrows and that nourishes hopes. So like I said, you know, Paul is gonna tell them precisely why he didn't come. He's gonna do it in the very next sentence, actually. But he has done something incredibly important first. Something that I hope fires your imaginations and mine when we find ourselves in conflict or trouble or under accusation. He has reminded them of who God is and who they are together. He's plotted their lives into the long and beautiful story of God and his world, into the shared life of the God who says yes in Jesus. (laughs) Now doing that is no guarantee that there won't be conflict or trouble or accusation. But starting there, Starting on that map, which is the true story of the world, that is what wisdom looks like. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, that you would help us um, in our own distress or trouble or accusation, in our own experience of conflict, in our own relational disturbances, we ask, um, Father, that you would help us to remember who we are and who you are and who Jesus is, the yes to every promise you have ever made. We ask that you would help us to remember this so that we could work out uh, that, that subversive and sometimes foolish wisdom of the cross in the situations that we find ourselves in. We ask that you would do that so we could help each other work out that wisdom in the situations that we find ourselves in and do all of this, Father, so that we would grow up in our faith and so that we would slowly become a people through whom you can love this broken world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.